episode of the Royal Ramble is dedicated to the memory of superstar Billy Graham. He's the man of the hour, the man with the power, too sweet to be sour. He eats T-bone steaks, lifts barbell plates, is sweeter than a German chocolate cake. The reflection of perfection, the number one selection, every woman's pet, every man's regret. What you see is what you get, and what you don't see is better yet. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to a jam-packed edition of the Royal Ramble. You're in for a huge, huge episode today, as I have three pay-per-views to preview later in the show. A three-view, if you will. But first, you heard it right at the start, I will talk about the life and career of superstar Billy Graham, who sadly passed away this week at the age of 79. In fact, I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get right into it. Eldridge Wayne Coleman Jr. on June 7, 1943, named after his father, a working-class man from Mississippi who was employed by a power company, and his job was driving telephone poles into the ground. The older Mr. Coleman later developed multiple sclerosis and was then assigned to lighter office work. Coleman's mother, Juanita, was Native American of Cherokee ancestry and born in Arkansas. Coleman first developed an interest in weightlifting in grade school. He would regularly read bodybuilding magazines and later became a devout Christian, often incorporating feats of strength into his sermons. He had a bit of a rough childhood and, according to Wikipedia, was allegedly beaten by his father, who supposedly became jealous of Coleman's physique. Coleman was an athlete in school, famous for track and field and shot put. He also boxed on an amateur and professional level and participated in the 1959 Golden Gloves. He played football in the CFL for the Montreal Alouettes and also worked as a debt collector and bouncer. He won the West Coast Division of the Mr. Teenage America Bodybuilding Contest in 1961 and in later years worked out with Arnold Schwarzenegger and was able to bench press 605 pounds. From there, he quickly transitioned from bodybuilding to professional wrestling. His career began in 1969 where he trained with the legendary Stu Hart and worked for Stampede Wrestling. He then joined the NWA's Los Angeles promotion, then run by Mike LaBelle. Up until then, he wrestled under his real name until eventually changing it to Billy Graham as a tribute to the famous evangelist of the same name. He dyed his hair blonde after a little encouragement from one of his mentors, Dr. Jerry Graham. While working for Championship Wrestling from Florida, Coleman was booked as the kayfabe brother of Jerry, Eddie, and Luke Graham. From there, he tagged with Pat Patterson and Roy Shire's NWA San Francisco promotion and further developed his character in California while also wrestling a brief stint in Hawaii. Coleman joined the AWA in 1972 and wrestled there for three years, feuding with such legends as The Crusher, 
Billy Robinson, Wahoo McDaniel, Ken Patera, The Bruiser, and Ivan Koloff. Koloff was also his tag team partner during this run. He wrestled a tour of Japan at the end of 1974 before returning to the States and teaming with Dusty Rhodes. He returned to the NWA in mid-1975, wrestling for Red Bastien's promotion in Dallas for five months before signing with the Mid-Atlantic promotion in North Carolina, filling in for Ric Flair following Flair's injury as a result of the plane crash. Graham debuted in the World Wide Wrestling Federation in October 1975 with the Grand Wizard as his manager. He briefly returned to Japan in 1976 to feud with Antonio Inoki before coming back to America, joining the NWA promotion in Florida and defeating Dusty Rhodes to win the Florida heavyweight title. He came back to the WWWF in 1977 and defeated Bruno Sammartino to capture the world title on April 30th of that year with both feet on the ropes. In a rare occurrence, Graham also wrestled then-NWA heavyweight champion Harley Race, in what was supposed to be a title unification bout, but resulted in a one-hour time limit draw. Graham lost his title to Bob Backlund in the start of 1978, and then left the WWWF to join Paul Bosch's promotion out of Houston. For the next few years, Graham spent his time wrestling in Japan, Canada, and the U.S., until returning to the rebranded World Wrestling Federation in 1982 and debuted a new look as he supposedly wanted to drop the superstar gimmick out of frustration with Vince McMahon Sr. not allowing him to become a fan favorite. He was unsuccessful in his quest to recapture the title from Bob Backlund and then left the promotion in 1983. He returned to the AWA at the end of the year and then went on to championship wrestling from Florida as a member of Kevin Sullivan's Army of Darkness, eventually turning babyface to feud with Sullivan's group. Graham brought back his superstar character, bleached blonde mustache and tie-dyed outfits by the end of this run, and then came back to the WWF in 1986, now as a babyface. Graham's in-ring career was cut short following the diagnosis that he would require hip replacement surgery. WWF filmed an angle where he was assaulted by the one-man gang and Butch Reed until Don Morocco came to Graham's defense as a babyface and Graham then became Morocco's manager. This is around the time that I first became familiar with the superstar. I would have loved to have been around during his legendary championship run or even some of his famous rivalries with Bruno and Dusty, but the first time I saw Billy Graham was at WrestleMania 4 where he accompanied Don Morocco to the ring. However, thanks to the WWE DVD releases and YouTube, I got to see archived footage of those moments, and that really allowed me to develop a deeper connection with him and a greater respect and appreciation for his contributions to the business. I remember during Graham's 2004 WWE Hall of Fame induction ceremony, he told the story about his liver transplant and thanked the family of the woman who donated her organ to help save Graham's life, and how forever grateful he was to her and her family. That moment, I think, is what stuck out to me more than any other in his career. It kind of brought out his human side. As much of an inspiration that Graham was to those who came after him, I cannot speak about him without talking about some of the controversies. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. He had an ongoing dispute with the McMahon family for decades before and after his Hall of Fame induction. He was very outspoken during the infamous steroid trial, personally suing Dr. Zahorian and claiming that he was encouraged to take anabolic steroids in order to maintain his position with the company. He also made accusations of sexual assault by some of the WWE officials on children. 
Years later, Graham admitted to have falsified those claims due to his own bitterness. He was once again on good terms with the company after signing a Legends contract in 2005, but then sold his Hall of Fame ring to help pay for some of his medical bills. He also wanted to be removed from the WWE Hall of Fame altogether after they had inducted Abdullah the Butcher in 2011 because Abdullah never wrestled for the company. After his liver condition worsened, Graham reached out in an attempt to make peace with the McMahons, even offering to be Linda McMahon's senatorial campaign manager, despite speaking out about her profiting from the WWE's racy programming at the time. Graham received his liver transplant in 2002 after being diagnosed with hepatitis C. He was in and out of the hospital in recent years due to several medical issues, most recently in January of this year as a result of an ear and skull infection. Graham was taken off of life support last week and was pronounced dead on May 17, 2023 from sepsis and multiple organ failure. He would have been 80 years old next month. I don't think anyone can ever deny the impact superstar Billy Graham has had on the wrestling business. He was a trailblazer and probably one of the blueprints for what pro wrestling has become today. I encourage all of you to go and find some superstar Billy Graham footage where you can and simply just enjoy. Wow, how can I even follow that? Well, I will try my best. Next weekend is a big one for wrestling fans. We have the WWE Night of Champions, AEW Double or Nothing, and NXT Battleground shows all taking place. But before I get to those, I wanted to talk a little about New Japan. I am thoroughly enjoying their Best of the Super Juniors tournament, and I think Mike Bailey has been the standout thus far. I always look forward to his matches, and this guy is currently one of my favorites to win Wrestler of the Year, so we'll see how the rest of his year goes. As I said, it's a busy weekend coming up. Progress also has their Super Strong Style 16 tournament kicking off. I'm not super familiar with the promotion, but looking at the brackets, there are a number of participants that have really impressed me in recent years, including Nick Wayne and Will Ospreay, so I may check some of that out. On the Super Sunday, AEW presents its annual Double or Nothing show. Given some of the other shows they've announced that are taking place overseas, this one kind of seems B-level by comparison, but it is a pretty stacked card. On Dynamite this week, they announced the elite team of Hangman Page, Kenny Omega, and the Young Bucks against the Blackpool Combat Club, comprised of John Moxley, Claudio, Wheeler Yuta, and Brian Danielson. Of these eight, I think Danielson has been the most impressive, as he's one of these guys like Mick Foley or Shawn Michaels or Eddie Guerrero, who can so easily and convincingly transition between babyface and heel or vice versa, which is a rare skill to have. I'm a little confused as to how Takeshita was supposed to fit into this angle, but perhaps that will be explained in the coming weeks, and I do think it was kind of premature to have Don Callis turn on Kenny Omega before this match, but hopefully they tie it in somehow. It'll be an Anarchy in the Arena match. I don't know why they chose this match type as opposed to Blood and Guts. We may still get Blood and Guts at some point, but I think I'd have preferred it, because a match like this will make it more difficult to keep track of all eight guys, and I'm assuming we're going to get split screens at some point. If this one is meant to continue, I'm thinking Don Callis' interference will lead to a heel team victory, and Kenny will take the pin. Given the rumors circulating about CM Punk's return, I also wonder if Tony Khan would be bold enough to involve him in the outcome of this match, or link him with Callis like he was with Heyman in WWE. But I'm thinking both Punk and the Elite would probably want more distance from each other. Chris Jericho vs. Adam Cole was also announced for this show. 
it seems that they're building Cole up as a huge baby face, so I can see him winning this match, and I can see him being used as either MJF's next challenger or Punk's first program when he returns, so I'll pick Cole to win here. Both women's titles will be up for grabs. The bigger news story will probably be Jade Cargill's first loss to Taya Valkyrie, who will walk away as the TBS women's champion. I think Jade has reached a point where she's just recycling opponents now, and Taya is really the only one who poses any kind of threat, so I think it's definitely time to end the streak. The AEW women's title is on the line as well, with Jamie Hayter defending against Tony Storm. I'm still having trouble buying Hayter as a babyface, or Britt for that matter. In Britt's case, I think it's only a matter of time before she turns, but you want it also to mean something, and so I think now would be too early to do it. Hayter also needs to be back in the title picture by the time All In comes around. That still weighs away though, so I can totally see a title change here. And then Hayter wins the belt back in the rematch at All In. Or they have her drop the belt to Soraya on TV and win it back from her at All In. I think it would definitely be more impactful to have her chasing for and winning the belt rather than just retaining it in her home country. The tag team title situation is a little bizarre and has always kind of been in AEW. I don't think there's a chance in hell that we're getting new champions, and especially not Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal, despite how entertaining their team has been lately. I think Mark Briscoe will be involved at some point, trying to prevent Jarrett from using the guitar. Jarrett will provoke him, and then Briscoe will try to nail Jeff with the guitar, but only for Jarrett to dodge it, and Dax takes the shot, but still ends up kicking out. And then FTR gets the clean finish on Lethal after the big rig. Wardlow will be challenged by Christian Cage for the TNT title. Some of Christian's promos leading into this one have been great, but I'm not so sure if he should be involved in title programs at this stage of his career, and I think I'd rather see Luchasaurus in this match, as dumb a gimmick as that is, but him against Wardlow is much more believable, and Christian is better off as a non-wrestling mouthpiece for the big guy. But it is what it is. I think Wardlow will probably win a squash match here, and then they do the post-match attack by Lucha afterwards. Orange Cassidy also puts his international title on the line in a blackjack battle royal. I can't see a title changing hands this way. I mean, it has been done before, but I've never really been a fan of it. At the very least, I hope some new rivalries come out of this, but I think OC is retaining here. And the four-way pillars match for the Triple B, the AEW world title. It'll be MJF defending against Jungle Boy Jack Perry, Darby Allin, and Sammy Guevara. Of the three challengers, I think Sammy is most likely to win the belt just given the storyline, and he's the strongest talker of the three, but my least personal favorite. Again, I'd rather not see a title change hands in a multi-person match. Sure, they can have MJF lose the belt without getting pinned or submitted, but then what's the point? I think Max is definitely keeping the belt here, and perhaps the other three become a trios team and go after House of Black to try to keep themselves relevant. Moving along, the NXT brand has their Battleground show, I believe on the same day, and it looks like a good one. A new women's champion will be crowned at the event. It's funny how the women's singles title was vacated, but the women's tag belts still exist on the main roster, and they're actually crowning new tag team champions there as well for some reason. I'll get into that ridiculousness later. There are four participants left. It's Cora Jade, Lyra Valkyria, Roxanne Perez, and Tiffany Stratton. I can't see them doing a premium live event without Roxanne involved, so she'll be in the match for sure, probably against Cora to finally end their rivalry, and I think we're getting a new women's champion in Cora Jade while Roxy moves up to the main roster. Just announced this past week, Noam Dar defends his Heritage Cup against Dragon Lee. 
This one should be fantastic, but as much as I like Dragon Lee, I'm not a fan of someone being rewarded with a title match of any kind when their win-loss record hasn't been great. Dragon needs to pick up a few big wins, and I think he might very shortly, starting with this one. Wes Lee puts his North American title on the line in a triple threat match against Tyler Bate and Joe Gacy for some reason. I think most people would have probably preferred Lee versus Bate one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm assuming Gacy is in there just because they needed a heel. I'm not a fan of Gacy, nor have I ever been. He's basically the Wish version of Bray Wyatt, and I'm not even a fan of the actual Wyatt. I think these characters are just so played out, and they have no idea how to book them. I think Wes will retain here and then maybe branch out into a singles program with Bate while Gacy either just disappears or gets called up. The Creed brothers also challenge Gallus for the NXT Tag Team titles, which should be another great match. It'll all depend on whether or not the Creeds are called up to the main roster, which I think is only a matter of time. I thought they've been ready for a while now, so I can definitely see Gallus going over here, especially with a third-man advantage. I believe they did just add Ilya Dragunov versus Dijak as well. This one could be sleeper for match of the night. Dijak has been a pleasant surprise as of late, at least in the ring. I'm not sold on the character, but the guy can go when the bell rings, and Dragunov is the perfect opponent to just non-stop sell for him. I think they'll probably want to put Dijak over, as I've heard rumors that Dragunov is getting the call-up as the newest member of Imperium, though I wouldn't mind seeing one or maybe 200 more matches between him and Gunther. Rounding out the card is the NXT world title match. It'll be Carmelo Hayes defending against Braun Breaker. I'm not sure how I feel about this double turn, but I think Braun has adjusted a little better to the role than Hayes who seems kind of uncomfortable as a babyface. Given the events of TV lately, I think it's pretty obvious what's going to happen here. A lot of people seem to think Braun will get called up, but I think he deserves a heel run with the belt, and I think he's getting it back after Carmelo is double-crossed by Trick Williams, and then those two feud with each other while Braun seeks out new challengers. Normally at this time, I would predict the next NXT card with my fantasy forecast, but I'm not sure exactly when the next one is, so I'll hold off on that. And that is kind of the reason I didn't do one for the AEW show either, just because the next few shows are international and will likely be more for entertainment value rather than storyline. So that leads us to the WWE Premium Live event, Night of Champions in Saudi Arabia. It'll actually be the first of the three events next weekend, taking place on the Saturday afternoon. The Intercontinental title will be up for grabs as Mustafa Ali challenges Gunther. Since Retribution, I have found it extremely hard to get into anything that Ali is involved with, but he could win me over with this one match, and I think WWE has been doing a fantastic job of capitalizing on hometown crowds, so if they give Ali some kind of hope spots in this one, it could be a show stealer. I don't expect him to win, but at least give him a nice showing. Gunther retain. Trish Stratus versus Becky Lynch in a huge grudge match was also just added as of last Monday. I just knew they wouldn't have the patience to save this one for SummerSlam, and I'm not sure this is a wise decision to do the match in Saudi, but it is what it is. I think it'll all depend on whether or not Trish will be sticking around. I think Becky may win this one, but then on TV, Trish brings in reinforcements, and Lita eventually turns as well, and you get the SummerSlam tag match with Trish and Lita against Becky and potentially Charlotte. They could also extend this one as far as Survivor Series with the team of Attitude Era women against Becky's team of Modern Day Women for an elimination match. A lot of possibilities with this program. 
So Liv Morgan is out with an injury, but for some reason, instead of crowning new women's tag team champions on a show called Night of Champions, they are doing it on Raw. I guess the Saudis may have wanted to limit the amount of women's matches on the show, but that doesn't make any sense. And what's even more nonsensical is the fact that Alba Fire and Isla Dawn, the NXT women's tag team champions, are still carrying those belts on the main roster. Why not just say that they're the main roster tag team champions? It's ridiculous. Asuka will challenge Bianca Belair for the Raw women's title, and I'm not even going to get into why the Raw women's title is on SmackDown now. I'll save that headache for another day. But I actually like this program better than their Mania program because now Asuka is clearly defined as a heel as opposed to being on the fence. Like I said with Jade earlier, I think Bianca has held this belt long enough that she's now starting to face the same opponents and I think it's time for her to lose it. I see the miss coming into play here at some point where Asuka tries to blast Bianca who ducks and the ref ends up catching the mist. As Bianca goes to check on the referee, Asuka applies the Asuka lock, and they do a similar finish to the Backlund vs. Brett match in 94, where the submission is on for an extended period of time, and then Montez eventually runs down and throws in the towel, so we get a new champion, and they use that to write Bianca off of TV for the next couple of months with a kayfabe injury, only to come back for the rematch at SummerSlam. A new champion will definitely be crowned in the Seth Rollins vs. AJ Styles match with the winner taking home the new World Heavyweight title, which is exclusive to the Raw brand. This is the match that I'm most looking forward to, but the booking has been very confusing. They've already laid the groundwork for a couple of potential AJ Styles feuds coming out of this, but the problem is that both Grayson Waller and Karrion Cross are on SmackDown, and if AJ wins, he would have to go to Raw, so why even tease anything? Then again, we all know the draft means nothing, as I'll explain in the later match, so I guess it really doesn't matter. But I expect this one to be highly competitive, with Rollins winning the belt. The Brock vs. Cody rematch was also added to the card, but given the finish that I'm about to predict, I can't see this one being the main event. I think we're getting a non-finish here where Brock attacks Cody before the bell and just brutalizes him, so we don't even really get a match, and then Lesnar stands tall over a bloody Cody Rhodes. The main event will likely be the tag title match with Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens defending against Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa. I am very surprised that Sami Zayn is being allowed to compete in Saudi, and I wonder if that will affect the result of the match. I've really enjoyed what they've been doing with the Bloodline story, and I think it'll continue here. I see no upside to Roman and Solo winning the tag belts, though. Roman already has a belt that he rarely defends, so he doesn't need two of them. I see the Usos getting involved and accidentally costing Roman and Solo the belts, where Solo takes the pin so Roman can be kept strong, and then Roman starts to target the Usos, but also has Solo at the back of his mind blaming him for the loss, possibly leading to a one-on-one -on -one match at SummerSlam. They already kind of teased it on SmackDown last week. So that's Night of Champions, and unlike the other two events, I will provide a fantasy forecast here. The next WWE Premium Live event will be Money in the Bank taking place at the O2 Arena in London, England. And I'm assuming Wade Barrett is going to be on commentary instead of Corey Graves, although they might have both, who knows. Let's start with the two Money in the Bank matches. First in the women's match representing SmackDown will be Shayna Baszler, Bayley, Io Sky, and Zelina Vega. On the Raw side will be Indy Hartwell, Zoe Stark, Raquel Rodriguez, and the debuting Roxanne Perez. In the men's match, representing SmackDown will be Grayson Waller, LA Knight, Santos Escobar, and Montez Ford. 
Representing Raw will be Gunther, Johnny Gargano, Shinsuke Nakamura, and The Miz. In addition, Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa will take on The Usos in tag team action. Seth Rollins puts the World Heavyweight title on the line against Brock Lesnar and Cody Rhodes in a triple threat match. AJ Styles takes on Karrion Cross. Rhea Ripley defends the Raw Women's title against Natalia, And Austin Theory puts the U.S. title on the line against Pete Dunne. So there you have it. I will be back next week to review only one show. It'll be WWE Money in the Bank, and then I will review the two Sunday shows the following week, so stay tuned. Until then, I leave you with an A-B-C-ya. Shh.